Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health broken down in a relatable way and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and today we have journalist Elisa Strauss joining us. Um, she writes about caregiving and women's issues, primarily the politics and culture of parenthood, not parenting. She wants you to know that she has no idea how you should be raising your children. As she regularly contributes to CNN.com and her work has been published in a number of publications, including the New York Times, Glamour, Elle, and Long Reads. Elisa is currently working on her first book, Why We Should Care, The Radical Power of Caring for Others and What We Need to Do It Better, which will be published next year. Hey, how are you? All right, how are you doing? I'm good. We finally got up and running, even though I think I mispronounced your name in the intro. It's okay. It's, I always really say, like, if you hit three syllables, you're good. It's when I'm Elise, <laughs> then it just doesn't, like like alert my brain that someone's talking about me or to me but three syllables all good at least that's pretty bad if someone's like can't even get the a there <laughs> it's happened it's happened. okay good to know so i've been doing like lots of stalking on you and my first question is what initially drew you to become a journalist so i always knew i wanted to be a writer Okay. Uh, I didn't really know how you did that. Um, so I thought I'd be an academic. Um, this is a this is a story that ends with a man rescuing me. So I'll warn you now. Um, so uh, my husband is a good guy, also a journalist. So uh, so basically, um, I went to graduate school. I was like pursuing as an I got a master's degree. I was doing Latin American literature. I thought maybe I'd do a PhD in comparative literature. Except I didn't really have an interest in teaching I just want to like research and read and write all day um well, and you being, were majoring in Latin Latin American studies okay okay Latin American so, yeah so I thought I would end up doing like a PhD in comparative literature and you know that was that was the plan um but I did want to be a professional writer I just had no idea how you broke into it um it was like no one uh where, you know, where I grew up, no one around me was professional writers. It just like wasn't this, there was no clear and obvious path. So I was like, I'll become an academic and I'll do writing and that's how I'll break into writing, you know? And um, so then long story, not short, met my husband, he's a journalist and he showed me how, you know, <laughs> you could do this. And okay. um, so yeah, I stopped at the master's and uh, moved to New York where he lived and uh, figured out how to be a journalist. Still figuring it out, but yeah. So, but yeah, did so you guys meet out west? No, we met in Israel. Actually, it's uh, oh, it's slightly oh. embarrassing. We met on Birthright Israel, which is a trip that is uh, was mostly created by very wealthy um, older Jews to try to uh, get young Jews in their twenties to meet up and get married, and we fell for it. Is this uh, okay you to go there? Yeah, exactly. It's a free okay. trip. And um, 
And his first job out of uh, college was at a Jewish newspaper. He wasn't raised really particularly Jewish. I remember in the interview to go on that, he kind of like expressed, he's like, you know, my mom's not Jewish. I don't know. Am I Jewish? And at some point they're like, do you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And he said, no. He's like, all right, you can go. You know, that was, that was like the final like screening process of whether or not he was allowed on the trip. Um, and I was like, in graduate school, poor, you know, my friend was a high school teacher in New York and we just like loved traveling in our twenties. And we're like, Oh, we're about to age out of this. Let's do this. You know, like signed up at 11 PM on a Sunday night type of thing and uh, put little thought in it. And then lo and behold, I met what we call my beshert in the Jewish faith, you know, my meant to be guy. So Is that yeah, what that's, that means? you're meant to be. Yeah. Like you're kind of faded person. Okay. Not that I necessarily know that I believe in that, but, you know, to keep with the theme of meeting on birthright and making the Jewish funders dreams come true. I'll call yeah, that's like amazing that that even happened. Yeah. I feel like a friend of mine was going to try to do that. And then she was like, I have to do it before my 25th birthday or I, I don't know. I think it was. She, yeah, exactly. Right? There's some cutoff, like 20 something around there. I was just around 25. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, I really, and then I think COVID happened and she's like, I guess we're not going to Israel. So that was the end of her meeting of her husband on birthright. <laughs> <laughs> We've given a lot of people false hope with this story though. I have yeah. to just broadcast that loud and clear. Yeah. yeah every like Jewish single woman is going to be signing up for birthright after this. <sighs> totally. He's cute too, ladies. Like, yeah. Um, so that's how you ended up. He basically showed you the way. Yeah. So, like, yeah. Because like, it's intimidating. I mean, becoming a journalist, I don't know, maybe others like figured I, you know, if you've totally figured it out on your own and you had like no one showing you the way, like that's amazing. And I'm sure many others have done it. I just, I like didn't know how to pitch. I didn't know how you find editors' emails. Like I said, really no idea how to get started. Now I will say, I think it changed a lot like even just around 20, like three years later, it changed a lot with the rise of like the feminist blogosphere. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there were like all these places where you could write and you could write kind of wild, weird stuff and really like show who you were. Um, so it became much easier, like really a handful of years later uh, with the rise of like internet publications and particularly like the women's space on the internet, which is like Jezebel, yeah. Um, and, all. and so I think I, you know, if it was a couple years later, I, maybe I think I would have known how to do it, but this was still a time when it was all kind of like locked up and you had to like, just figure out like who was even the editor and how do I reach out and how do I, you know, like the, the process took a longer time. It was just a very different situation. But that probably means that there were more qualified people and better people applying because you had to be, you know, smarter. <laughs> We're like, now I feel like I don't know. It's kind of, you can kind of force your way into anything. Doesn't mean you're not going to get the job necessarily. Totally. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So, and I think it's, you know, total mixed bag where it's like you got like voices rose up who maybe would have never risen up through the yeah. channels before. So that's really beautiful. And like, I have to imagine, I don't want to assume anyone's trajectory, but I can think of many writers who I imagine like deserve to be famous and deserve their success, but maybe wouldn't have risen up with like the channels that existed even just 15 years ago. Yeah. Wow. And you tend to report on family dynamics, parenting and mental health. So I'm curious what got you into those topics in the first place? Yeah. Um, 
So I, I wouldn't say like mental, you know, mental health is kind of lurking behind everything, right? You know, well, I wouldn't say. That. I would, yeah. I know you're more family, that, but you know, I had to just add that in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have written about it, but I, I don't, you know, it's not, I wouldn't say like there are people who really dig deep. Um, but yeah, you know, I think like I started writing about motherhood as an outcropping of writing about feminism and women's issues. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing about uh, parenthood as an outcropping of motherhood. And I started yeah. writing about caring for other people more broadly, you know, whether it's elder care, care for the ill or disabled, kind of as an outcropping of writing about parenthood. So I think that was like the path that um, brought me there. Also, you know, I'm like, I studied creative writing. I have a half finished novel that I will finish, you know, in 10 years. And um, so mm-hmm. I'm just yeah, interested in coming out next year. No, that's a nonfiction book on, oh, okay. a, on care. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm just, you know, I think human relationships are endlessly fascinating and they're behind so much of what we do and who we are. And, you know, and I think parenthood, particularly like the parent side of parenthood, is something that's been neglected so long, has been neglected for such a long time as this like ripe and rich place. You mean that that's what people paint parenthood as? I think it's like, I mean, even if you look at like early research on parenting, like the early attachment research, it was kind of like, you know, the excite, they like, believe it or not, like a man in the 20th century had to discover that like parenthood and par- but parenting really matters for children. It was like, oh, this is actually really important. Um, and Ooh. it was basically like looking at orphans after World War II and seeing like how horrible the effects were for babies that were just like stuck alone all day in an orphanage and not receiving any care. And then it was like, oh, oh, you know, parent, oh, it matters. Like actually- That seems like such a duh, you know? Like, totally, <laughs> yeah. exactly, you know? So that was a great, and that was like an advance forward. It's like, oh, parenting matters. Hell, check this out, guys. Like, can you believe this? Um, and then, but even then it was like the parents- there was no curiosity about the parents. The parents were the fix factor and the kids were the X factor. So I feel like what's like finally happening now, it's like, oh no, there's like a side, we're part of this too. Like we're part yeah. of a relationship and um, we are not a fixed factor. We are not some like sentimentalized, idealized, like Victorian mother that's like just knitting all day and like, you know, like serving our kids stew. Like we're messy, complicated people too. And it's so, yeah, that's, I feel like it's this profound human relationship that we're like just starting to dig in and- no, I, I think that's definitely true because I remember last year I froze my eggs and I remember I was talking to my shrink at the time and I was so, I mean, I was so emotional just because of all the hormones they're like pumping you up with. And I've, uh, my second baby was IVF. So oh, I, know okay. it, I know it very, very well. Yeah. Really great. <laughs> oh yeah. I know that. Uh, yeah. So I was just like, and I'm never going to meet him. I'm never going to have kids. And he's like, Katie, just so you know, like having kids doesn't make you happier. And I found it so refreshing because it's kind of relates to what you're saying that everybody I think expects or they paint pictures that you're going to have kids and suddenly it's like, oh, my life has meaning. I'm, you know, and that doesn't mean it's not going to enrich your life or give your life meaning, but that many studies have been shown that it's not that it it will equate necessarily happiness. Yeah. And I think like happiness is kind of, to me, a frustrating metric when we think about any yes. human relationship, you know, it's like, you know, I want to say like one caveat though, so much of that research um, does show how much unhappier parents are 
in countries like America where there's no support really? for parents and kickers. Yeah, there's a lot wow. of cross-national research. I mean, essentially, once you isolate for um, money and for institutional support, like parents aren't necessarily unhappier, not on an individual basis. Everyone has their own experience, but just kind of broad data. Um, yeah. So a lot of the unhappiness stuff in America is because like nowhere else are parents treated worse than we are in America. But wow. yeah. Because yeah. when he said that, I was like, you're just saying that. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then I was like, but you are a parent. He's like, yep. <laughs> yeah. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, there's some research shows that they are in fact happier, but I think more of the research shows that like, it's just like a part of life and right. um, it, it doesn't necessarily ruin your life, you know, which I think is important because in America kind of does, but not because like kids are horrible, but because we don't have like maternity leave, um, right. which is, you know, no small matter. Um, and, our, you know, to afford childcare is like a mortgage and a half, you know, um, these things crush you. But yeah, I think it's, again, like it's, you know, it's, I'm so interested. It's like complicated, you know, it's, yeah. We don't really like get married per se because we think, oh, marriage will make me happier. Like that's to me kind of like, right, a Disney version, like the happily ever after. It's like, no, we get married because like we believe companionship adds meaning to our life and it'll challenge us in, in you know, various ways. Um, not, you know, I feel like, again, it's like so much we do in life, our work, you know, does our work always make us happier? No, but, you know, if we're lucky enough to have work, we find meaningful, again, it like enriches us and challenges us. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's funny how we, you know, I feel like the conversation always goes to happiness with parenthood, but it's like, what if we broadened it and saw it as, you know, richer and messier and we kind of left the happy part, which puts so much pressure on parents anyway, aside. Yeah. No, it, it does. And it, it was just interesting because no one, and here's a you know, man, like a straight man saying this to me. And like, no yeah. one's ever said that ever. It's always like, well, of course you're, you're going to have kids and like, they're going to enrich your life. And, and, you know, and, and it was such an emotional time. And then for him to say that, and by the way, he's so old school where like, he may have mentioned his son once. I don't really know a lot about him. That's why I like him as a psychiatrist. Cause mm -hmm. you know, he's, he's, he reminds me of my New York psychiatrist who was yeah. just so like, you really never knew what he was thinking or, or where he, you know, lived and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just, it was a very interesting thing to hear. And it, it made me feel better. And I just thought of that with what you were saying, where that it is like people kind of, and I guess, yeah, more so in America than other countries, the parents are kind of like thrown out the window and now it's all about the kids and like, what are the kids doing? What, you know, how can we do this or that? And they don't really look at it as a whole dynamic. Most right. people. Yeah, no, for sure. So did you, did you feel like as you were growing up, was your household like a kind of very dynamic atmosphere of, did you, do you feel, I mean, are you close? I would think someone like you or just what I've read in the articles I wrote, you're close with your parents. Yeah. Do we talk, you know, is it like an every day, if not, you know, every other day situation? Yes. You know, okay. um, yeah, I'm one of four siblings. We're close. You know, we have no boundaries for better and worse kind of family, but, uh, but uh, we are a loud, warm family. We check all those kind of boxes for sure. Okay. That's good. I'm, I'm the same. I'm from the similar family. Nice. I'm glad you said that or, and you weren't like, no, I, hate my parents and I don't speak to them. I'd be like, okay, great. I mean, I do often, but I speak, yeah, of course. but yeah, no. but yeah, that all involves speaking to them a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why. You yeah. 
<laughs> so uh, a recent article that you wrote for CNN touched upon how empathy can boost children's creativity. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm quoting you, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as a social and emotional curriculum. Feelings were something to work out on the playground or after the last bell of the day rang. This was, this is so true for me as well. And where now I almost feel people are, this is just me personally, like almost too coddling with their children and everything is about feelings, especially in California. Yep. But at the same time, of course, empathy is one of the most needed things, especially when it comes to mental health. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I want to ask you, do you think empathy can be taught? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, actually not only can empathy be taught, it has to be taught because, you know, according to what I learned through reporting this story, you will lose it, um, which Ooh. I had never known before. And there's some interesting research on it. Um, and yeah, and you also see it a lot with the kind of gender divide and how we um, raise boys versus girls. One of my dear friends, Ruth, has been researching a project on this. Um, just basically expect boys to be less empathetic and therefore boys are less empathetic and um and they don't have to be it's not like they're wired to be it's just like we don't expect them to respond emotionally we expect them to respond logically and this goes back to you know uh, research that was done by this like amazing woman named carol gilligan back in um the 70s kind of questioning like why some male psychologists thought women were less morally developed than men and she and you know that was really like a big guy at harvard said like women are less more you know they are less morally uh, sophisticated than men and she's like hang on no oh my god women are more empathetic and so when we try to make moral judgments we rely more on our emotions she doesn't think women have to be this way she thinks this is a product of the patriarchy not a product of like women are x and men are y um so yeah i mean you know to get back to like the question you just asked, like, yes, I think all that kind of points us in the direction that, you know, not only can empathy be taught, which it absolutely can, it like, it has to be taught, especially with our little boys who it's just not as instinctual because we don't think of it as a skill they need in their life. No, that's interesting. How do you help your kids find empathy? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, we, it's, it's a big one in our house. Um, I, I, I would very... think that'd be hard. I mean, not like, like you obviously said, it can be taught, but something you have to keep doing. I mean, it takes work. Yeah. So it's, you know, it starts with small steps of like, when you watch a movie together, they're reading a book, you kind of ask them how you think different characters feel. Uh, <laughs> when they hurt each other, it's, um, I mean, maybe this is like, you know, I don't, I'm not a parenting columnist. I don't like to tell you what to do, but I like this one. So if anyone's listening, I recommend it. Um, <laughs> the first thing I do before I get mad and try to decide like who's right or who's wrong, if someone deserves punishment or not, the first thing I do is give the one that hurt the other a chance to help and care for the other. So it's oh. like, you know, if, if, you know, I have, I have uh, two boys, uh, eight and three. And if like the, right, the three-year-old hurts the eight-year-old or the eight-year-old three-year-olds, will you ask them, do they need an ice pack? Do they need a stuffy? Do they need a hug? And that's the first stop. And then most of the time that kind of like de-escalates the tension anyway, and we can move on with our day. Um, but it gives them a chance to feel good. Like the kid that was the offender gives it, gets a chance to 
like show that they're a good person and feel good about themselves. So I think it helps like deescalate things instead of playing who done it and like who deserves what punishment. It's like, let's just care for each other first. It's like palate cleanser, you know, let's yeah. empathize and care. Um, and it, it's, you know, kids are all different. So I, you know, I'll take back, you know, the whole idea that this could be a parenting tip because I really do believe like dynamics and individuals are so different. I'll just say that it works really well in our house. And, um, and I think it kind of like sets a tone that like, even when you do something wrong, like the first thing you think of, you know, don't get caught up in your shame. Get first thing to do is like, all right, you did something wrong. We all do wrong things. Like, how can I care for the person I wronged? Wow. My household was just emotion, emotion, emotion. So that, that um, I really take my hat off that you're able to do that. I don't think I would be able to <laughs> just stop and be like, okay, where's, I would just like, I like, just let them do it. Like, I don't even get involved. So it's kind of like, I don't, it's, you know, it takes actually the pressure off me, you know, that's like, right. mommy, blah, 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 just, you know, took, knocked over my, you know, blocks or hit me or blah, blah, blah. And I was right. like, all right, how are you going to help them? How do they need, how do they, you know, how can you care for them? So it's like, I don't have to leave the kitchen if I'm cooking. <laughs> it's like, it's really easy. <laughs> And it's like, you know, and I trust, I just say, I'll trust you too, you know? And again, listen, it's disposition, you know, it's vibes and disposition. Um, this is no, no, no parenting trick is one size fits all, but, um, but it works and it's easier. It really is. Like, I don't, and then it's not on me to like decide like who's bad and who's, you know, the victim right. or anything. I just let them care for each other and everyone's kind of happy. You know, kids don't, like kids feel shame so intensely. So it's kind of like, give them something to feel good about that like teaches them a good skill instead of just like sitting there and, you know, like um, hanging out in the shame, which- Why do you, you know, think, why do you think kids feel shame like so intensely? I think kids have a deep moral sense of right and wrong. It's pretty rigid. Um, and you kind of have to, I, I mean, kids, kids love, binaries to begin with that's why you know like you see around age four or five like suddenly the division between girl and boy and girls everything to them because they just love categorizing things um and, and one of the things they love categorizing is right and wrong and um and you can use this you know to your advantage to try to like help them get you know early sense of like justice in the world or you know, is it like why, you know, my eight-year-old's obsessed with littering because littering is just like so clearly wrong. And it's like, great, be obsessed with litter, be obsessed with like all the garbage we create, you know, um, it can be good, but also it can be rigid and they can like get carried away with, again, like he's, you know, who did it, who's right, who's wrong. And um, so like, in you know, empathy is a counterpoint to that kind of rigid thinking. And this goes back to the saying of like Carol Gilligan getting mad that like, oh no, women aren't less sophisticated. Like we don't, we just like aren't so rigid in our ideas of right and wrong. We, we rely on feelings and empathy. And once you get in that, like once you're swimming in that sea, things are a little more complicated sometimes. So it's kind of like educating them away from that rigidity and that then the shame is a product of it. You know, it's like, if you have a sense of like clear right and wrong, then when you do the wrong thing like you're just gonna feel really embarrassed and you know some kids have like more natural I one of my kids just like experiences shame much more deeply and profoundly than my other one it's just wired in him is he left-handed he's not he's not no. but my husband is and he also has a thing for shame so maybe you're onto something well they there. supposedly men who are left-handed have a more 
they're more in touch with their feminine side, like feelings. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, you want to marry a left-handed man, so you did good. You did did, good. Yeah, yeah. There we go. But I think that's interesting. Like, so it's basically kind of teaching your kids not to think in such a black and white. Like, okay, if they are want this, you know, everything rigid in their life, and just think like outside of that, that we have to have empathy for this person because maybe that's why they did that, that it's not right or wrong. Right. And like, that's how life is when you grow, you know, it's like you yeah. fight with your husband. You, I mean, like rarely is it so clear of who's right and who wrong, who's mm-hmm. wrong. And like, particularly our personal relationships in our life, but also like in life in general. So like the more you can kind of right like teach particularly boys who who society like doesn't naturally teach these skills it's you know girls experience more and like there's the stories they experience you know um read and watch and uh so society you know doesn't right doesn't do that as much with boys i mean that's what's so interesting about the study that i wrote about in in that recent article you mentioned like they actually found that when you they gave this was uh junior high like so these were the boys that were like the most boy because junior high is a time when everyone's just like terrified of being themselves so like they'll follow any social script available to them you know um and so this these were junior high boys and because like they gave them a task in which like there was like a clear place for feelings because i I, i'll I'll step back the task was to create basically an inhaler for little kids because asthma is a big problem in the uk and they wanted some kind of asthma treatment pack that like would be easy for caregivers to use or parents to use and also for the kids like the animal totally yeah so they like they gave boys like it was like context where they like, if you can tap into feelings and like get into the headspace of what it is to feel like to be an asthmatic and they have them suck through a straw and like watch videos and all this, then, then you will do a better job at this task. So it kind of like, it was like a really clear context in which they could use their feelings and, um, and they became more empathetic as a result. Like it worked, you know, it's, uh, wow. it's in them. It's just that, unfortunately they're not giving given a context for it a lot so and you do you think that along with how you mentioned earlier the parents in the united states you know versus the rest of the planet do you feel like american boys i guess and girls even are less empathetic just because of the way america is or no i have no idea that's a really good question um yeah as as i think I think there's been like this positive movement towards teaching empathy. I mean, teaching these social emotional skills, which yeah, I feel like right when you were a kid to do, I don't remember, like I'm pretty sure it's like a whole new concept, idea, phrase, SEL, like I don't even- Are you kidding me? We, there was like none of, I'm like baffled when any of my friends tell me about what their kids do at school in Los Angeles. Yeah, like, 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 it was so different. Like, totally. Yeah. yeah. So, like, there was we didn't talk about like boundaries. <laughs> no, there wasn't like a gluten free option at the cafeteria. Yeah. Like, no, no, it was just like you deal with it. Bye. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think like there is this movement that you know, and listen, not all SEL learning is necessarily high quality, but overall, just like this, like idea that like oh we also teach people how to treat each other and how to feel and how to have vocabulary for feelings like that's come up so much in mental health stuff just being able to label feelings like 
really helps you navigate them. And so, and not everyone gets that at home. So like, and particularly boys don't get it. So right, like giving kids these tools is huge. So I think there's like a big attempt. I don't know quite how widespread it is, but I know it's like, you know, it's, it's a big thing now, like this attempt to have this emotional education, which, you know, I think is great. Like, let's no, talk I mean, about our feelings. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, also I'm, I would, I would guess that it's easier or it's probably more available at private schools versus public or do they maybe, are they incorporating that into the public school system? I'm not sure. I think that it's, it's common in public too. It is both. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's kind of, it's happening. I mean, it's really happening. Yeah. Yeah. For, For people that don't know, SEL stands for social and emotional learning. Yes. I just had to look that up because I don't have kids, so I wouldn't know what that is. Yeah. It's, it's amazing even just like how it became, you know, like for those of us who have kids, like, right, that is even a thing. Like, it's such a yeah, thing that we I'm have like a shorthand way of talking about it. You know, we just go, yeah. oh yeah, SEL. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So while we're on the topic of kids and parenting, another, um, in an, another article, you had quoted Marcy Burst, Burstein. Am I saying her name right? I don't know for sure, but either it's ah, either, you don't yeah, know. Burst, Burstein or Burstein. <laughs> no, I Burstein. Think, yeah, I don't Burstein, know. Yeah, I think it's yeah. right. Sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Um, who is a clinical psychologist and employee of the National Institute of Mental Health? This was in another article for CNN. Uh, she stated mental health issues should be considered like any other illness. She said, We don't blame someone for having diabetes. This I thought was so important. Uh, I've spoken about this in the past, but I really feel it bears repeating because just because you can't see it in someone doesn't mean it isn't there. Totally. And a lot of mental health issues are sometimes hard to diagnose and which can make then anyone seeing it or knowing they have one even that much harder, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Um, so I just thought that was really great. And then um, recent studies too had shown that putting a parent on an anti-anxiety or antidepressant can have a greater effect on a child experiencing symptoms than putting the actual child on medication. Yeah, yeah. Have you had any experience with that or any parents, you know, experienced this firsthand? Um, I've known parents whose own therapy has helped their children. And I also know parents who have done, which who I also mentioned, I'm in the piece of a name, Eli Leibowitz at um, Yale, who treats children by treating their parents. So he tells children how to talk about. That's men- amazing. Yeah. Like basically the, like the, like what you say and what you don't say to a kid that's dealing with anxiety. I've actually known a couple and they like speak very highly about it, um, who have done that kind of therapy. Um, but you know, listen, it makes sense. It's like, we are really all connected as humans. And, um, and, you know, I, I feel like I want to make sure it doesn't sound like, you know, that means like, oh, it's all the parents thought. Fault, no, sorry. No. And I don't, I know you don't mean that. I just want to like, you know, get like spread that in the universe <laughs> widely as I can. Like, no, you know, it's, it's more, it's no one's fault. It's just like the reality of interdependence in this world. We are all connected and like our mental states, can affect our children and our children's mental states can affect us. And it's like, so, you know, what I love about back to like this, you know, Eli Leibowitz and his stuff is that um, he sees how we're all connected. Like he treats us all connected. And, you know, I think 
when you're dealing with mental illness stuff, it, like it's very helpful, whether it's you or your child, it's like helpful to remember we're all connected. So like the treatment might involve everyone on some level, like, you know, regardless of who is experiencing it. No, for sure. And what, what is something that he says not to say to your child? I think like you don't, like, like if they're that. having like a really bad, cause I just think so many kids are, um, even just, we've only done, I think we've only released four episodes, but I'm amazed at how many teenagers have reached out to me about how they have such crippling anxiety and yeah. it's so hard and this is so helpful. And I think a lot of people honestly, like don't really know what to say, uh, you know, maybe an, adults or maybe even fellow kids, but adults, especially, I think, um, I think a lot of people can just sort of be very dismissive and say like, oh, it's all in your head or, so I'd be curious to know what he's, what one should say to a child. Well, I think for particularly for anxiety, he's very aware how easily parents can accommodate the anxiety and attempt Mm. to like nurture, like so well-meaning, like, like with the fullest heart and attempt to nurture their kid. Like, I know, sweetie, you're not, you don't feel like going out today. Like, we'll just stay home and cuddle. And obviously every single human at various points in their lives needs exactly that. (laughs) Don't leave, stay home and cuddle, make a bowl of popcorn and like leave it at that. But if your kid has like agoraphobia and never wants to go to school, you know, it's, there's like a tipping point where you, if you accommodate, if every time the kid calls to get picked up from school and you come and get them, you can like feed the anxiety. So it's obviously a tightrope back, you know, it's no one saying this is easy, but there is to a degree that you want to say like, I understand, um, you're feeling scared today at school, but I think I know you can make it through the end of the day and, you know, and, uh, and I'm excited to see you. So it's like, you don't tell them they're bad for having those feelings. You validate the feelings, but you don't let them go through on the behavior, you know, that like you, you, instead you raise them up and tell them they can do it. And, you know, it can be hard, but you're going to do this. And, um, I think that's kind of, like one of his biggest uh, directions for parents with kids, that especially, you know, particularly with anxiety. Yeah, yeah, because of course you want to not be like, oh, whatever, like get your clothes on, goodbye. But at, but at the same time, you don't want to do what I think is obviously someone who's nurturing's first inclination to say like, okay, stay home. But what you're saying makes sense. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And like, I mean, it sounds hard. Like I'm, you know, knock on wood, we're you know, I kind of think mental illness hits, hits all of us at some point. So uh, like my husband and I have, you know, we've both had ours and I've had anxiety, he's had depression stuff. And I, you know, I don't, I, I suspect, you know, it, it may happen at some point with our kids, but it has not happened yet. Um, and, and I really sympathize with parents having to do that because that sounds really hard. Like, even though, you know, it's good. And I'm thinking, you know, you check out his work and you read his book and like, you get all the direction you need because, you know, I don't think anyone minimizes how hard it is to like go against kind of like that, like nurturing indulgent instinct that most parents have when their child is suffering. No, for sure. So when, when you were depressed, what did you find helped you the most? I was not depressed. I had anxiety, panic attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm in that side. Uh, what helped me the most? I mean, ultimately cognitive behavior therapy was like a miracle wand. I know doesn't work for everyone. Um, uh, but for me, it was just like, just what I needed at the right moment. Yeah, no, I've done uh, CBT. I mean, you know, now, since you know, SEL, I'm going to drop the old CBT. Yeah, in. yeah, bring it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that 
I experienced very bad OCD, um, obsessive compulsive behavior. Uh And so I, um, or sorry, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I found uh, CBT very helpful as well. I mean, you really have to practice it. I think that's what yeah. turns a lot of people off is right. kind of, it takes work. It's kind of, you have homework and you have to kind of practice these rituals, which is for me, I was like, oh, this is great. More rituals for like, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, yeah, it doesn't work for everyone, but that's great that that was able to help you because panic attacks can feel so, I mean, as with a lot of things, but very physical, like something is totally they're, right. Like they they're can, so in the body. Yeah. So that's great that you were able to work that out through that. Yeah. It was just like this like little, you know, shift. It's like the, it's like one of those minor but major shifts in consciousness where like my anxiety wasn't me. It was just part of me. And it's like so subtle, but it was just opened up that space I needed to like get through it. It was like it just separated. And that's, you know, that was like the kind of switch that CBT helped me flip in my brain. It's like, I am not my anxiety. My anxiety is just like a piece of me. And now I can like have the rest of me kind of figure out how to work on it. And, uh, and that was, I mean, it was everything. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good point for a lot of, um, mental health, mental illness issues is that this isn't forever. I mean, when I get in really low states of my depression, I have to remember like that they'll tomorrow may feel better. And I think it's really hard if you don't have those skills to know that because you're so, you feel like you're drowning. So you just want to give up. So Mm -hmm. that, that, or like you're saying that this isn't all of you, this is just a part of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't define you when you're in it. Yeah. So, um, well, this, this is my favorite quote from you so far from another CNN article, because basically you have just been very busy of late. seems like CNN, this is not a CNN sponsored episode, but I feel like. I no, I write, I'm a contributing writer there. I write twice a month and I and uh, you know, I, while I'm writing my book, that's a, uh, my, you know, my only journalism work is yeah. My twice month. But you've written it, but you, you've been writing for them for many years. Yeah. I think three years now. Yeah. So anyway, I yeah. it was a lot of very good articles. Um, but as you were talking about, I think this is, I don't want to say what this is from because then it's going to basically like give away the quote. Um, that I'm quoting you, emotional suffering is inevitable. Life is painful and uncomfortable at some point for all of us. If you never experience these feelings, well, I have some bad news. You're likely neck deep in denial or toxic past positivity or both. And it isn't benefiting anyone, least of all yourself. I hate toxic positivity. So like, I literally cannot stand it. So can we please talk about toxic positivity? Like, is there anything worse? And it was interesting because when I was reading this, I clicked on, you know, there was a link in that Uh that article. And then I read that woman's article, which was just hilarious about the woman who tweeted toxic positivity and how it just became this whole thing. It was very interesting. Totally. No, it's so funny. You know, it's so funny though, because like on, on one hand, it's the worst. On the other hand, I'm like probably guilty of it because I am. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. You don't, I mean, I don't mean this as a diss, but I've only talked to you now for four, but 45 minutes. That doesn't seem like 
No, I'm just I know it's something it's like I am maybe I just live in a world of like very cynical people no I don't think I'm I don't think I have toxic I hope I don't have toxic positivity but like I am an optimist like I can't help it I am a problem solver so it's you know it's kind of like it's up to me actually that's like my tightrope act as a human of like how do I support people and how, and not I have to be myself, you know, like you can't not be yourself. And so we right. all like the best we could do is ultimately just like who we can, you know, is being ourselves and who we can be. And uh, so I am an optimistic person. And I am a problem solver by nature. Um, so, right. That's like kind of my own tightrope back to like not be toxic, the toxic positive force in someone's life. Um, but no, I don't think I think like everything's great and I'm not like you know, telling you that you should be like meditating while, you know, your kid is like throwing peas all over the floor or something. <laughs> um, that's not my bag, but, uh, but no, it is, it is really hard. You know, it's, it's hard on both sides. Like the people that are telling everything is like great, that can kind of flatten the conversation. And the people that are like, everything's terrible, which I think is something that really happens a lot in like parenthood, social media. The oh, complaint. really? Yeah. It's like very, it's kind of like, cool to complain about parenthood now for lack of better word and uh yeah like being miserable because then it's like company yeah and it's just like you kind I don't know I think honestly there's some like patriarchy bullshit in there where it's like the devaluation of care Mm. has made I think we've internalized it so it's like god forbid I'm getting something this it's just drudgery um also like it's legitimately drudgery sometimes again especially in America where you like have to make choices between you know jobs and kids and life you know just like impossible choices because we have get no support um but yeah that said I think it's like you have the like super idealized version of parenthood, like on Instagram where, you know, the like living on a farm and everybody like weaves their own sweaters and sing songs after dinner. And then you have like the full pendulum switch, sw- like uh, swing to the other side to um, this like idea where people talk about real parenthood. And whenever you use the phrase real, it's always like, a nightmare you know it's just like yeah. I'm so tired and I have diarrhea all over my head because my baby you know shit on my face and like I haven't <laughs> showered in 40 days um and I think that's problematic too you know but I think people just kind of like speak in shorthand so it's like either it either we're idealized or it's or it's the absolute worst thing instead of like again messy and complicated so yeah I mean I, I guess that's the, like within the parenting world specifically it's like you have kind of toxic negativity and toxic positivity and how do you like how do you find your way in the middle of that and genuinely hard you know like honestly it's not right like it's not like I can say do this or I even you know to myself let alone to other people um but genuinely hard yeah is there is that why again I, I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm like stalking you is that, is that why on Facebook you had you were asking people to DM you that have had an uplifting experience being a caretaker or a spiritual experience? Yeah. So that's, um, that's for this book project I'm working on, which is, you know, the working title least is like why we should care the radical power of caring for others. And when I say caring for others in this book, I'm referring specifically to parenting or caregiving Got it. ill okay. elderly or disabled paid or unpaid. So I'm speaking to nannies. I'm speaking to home healthcare oh. workers along with like parents and children who are taking care of their elderly parents and, you know, husbands who are taking care of their sick wives and so on and so forth. Um, 
because yeah i mean this is a lot of yeah you're, you are you are totally onto something which is that like you know i feel like i'm been working you know trying to net like find this kind of new way to talk about care in all it's like glorious complexity and you know you know when people say oh but caregiving's hard i'm like you know what like Henry David Thoreau is in a cabin in the wood, you know, in the woods alone, but no electricity for a year. And that was hard, but he's like an American hero. But like when care's hard, it's just like, oh, it's just drudgery, you know? And yeah. you speak to caregivers and it's like a profound experience. Um, and even if it's hard, it's often hard, you know? And, and some, some, are, some situations are just impossible. Like if you have to take care of a parent who abused you your whole life, and now has dementia is even more abusive. Like, I'm not going to tell you for a second that you should like, you know, find like God in that, like that, maybe that is just horrible. But, but I think still, like, there's a lot of people out there who are having these meaningful experiences and right. And like in the toxic positivity doesn't acknowledge that, but so, and nor does the toxic negativity. No, I mean, I think, I think you have to be um, and again, back sort of circling back to empathy, you have to have great empathy to be a true caregiver. Mm -hmm. um, totally. In a in a in the caregiving field, whether it's a doctor nurse or like you're saying, just that you're talking to people where it's unpaid or they're volunteering, but that also it can be so rewarding mm -hmm. um, because it's you're you're rewarded in a different way. It's not like any of those positions really. Well, I guess I shouldn't say, I guess if you're a doctor, but you know, I mean, we even saw this with the pandemic that's still ongoing of how many people were just completely selfless, especially when this first all started, basically, what was it like a year ago? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but, but, uh, but I would think was talking to someone with toxic positivity during <laughs> some of this stuff, it's just too much. Oh, it's way too much. It's way too much. Yeah, it's it's awful. I mean, nobody, you know, who, yeah, I think, you know, I wrote recently, it was like about um, kids. Oh, what? God, I don't even remember the article, but I remember what we call the kicker in the business. Um, oh, it was about pediatric vaccines. Um, but at the end of it, I was like, no more lessons for our kids. Like, no more lessons from this. No more silver linings. Oh, like, yes. we're you, done you with the lessons. Like, yes, that article, I read that. That was very scary. I was like, this must be horrifying being a parent if your child is under, because is it under 12 or under 14? You were talking about it's, the vaccine. like Yeah, I mean, there probably won't be a vaccine. For, for 12 and up, like decent, decent chance, uh, no promises, but decent chance by like end of summer, let's say that there might be a vaccine. But for 12 and under, it's seeming increasingly likely that it won't really happen until after the summer, probably winter, but also like, also, there's a gap time between when it's approved and when it's actually in our kids' arms. So it's a journey, a long journey ahead. Right. But that was, yeah. I thought, even though you say you don't like to give parenting advice, I thought that was good advice where basically for the <laughs> older child, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. you were like, oh, you probably won't go back to school till the fall. And then the younger one, it's like, well, maybe summer camp, you know, to choose your sort of levels of disappointment for the Children. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I feel like it's the way that parents have been left out of this conversation so much, like speaking of parents and speaking of mental health, you know, like it's just in the New York Times had that great package called the primal scream and mm -hmm. just like parents and their mental health have been left out of the conversation and the pediatric vaccine is part of this. Like, 
you know, yeah. again, I totally like respect and awe for everyone who made a vaccine happen this quickly. I don't think there's any bad actors in this. Right. That said, I think we could have had conversations about a pediatric vaccine earlier, um, particularly if we think now it's like crucial to herd immunity. You know, it's just, it's like, this is all like kids live with parents and the parents, right. like if the kids aren't vaccinated, the parents can't get on a plane and visit their parents. You know, it's all. Is that all what one. they're saying now? Is that, is that crucial for herd immunity? There's different opinions, okay. um, but some say yes. Like the Times ran a New York Times ran like a similar story just two days ago, and they were even leaning in more to like this idea that it's crucial for herd immunity. I spoke to you know pretty top epidemiologists around the country, and they had mixed opinions. Some said like absolutely not, and some said absolutely. Oh, yeah, that's I yeah, yeah. I, I I don't um, I mean. This will not, it was just sort of ironic again with the, with, you know, the end of last year or actually even into, no, like it was literally a year ago, February, the second time I froze my eggs, like all I wanted was a child. And then with the pandemic, hitting, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm okay now. <laughs> like, was like, what you're saying that like you would, I would see like, of course, it's going to be so incredibly difficult. Yeah. Not only are you dealing with your own emotions, fears, anxiety, then you have your children. Totally. And then like, you know, all the practical stuff on top of it that is not helping anything, which is like school's closed. What do I do with my kid all day? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we always end every interview with our five questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So the first one, what do you do for a mental break? To like exercise you know kind of your classic exercise read you know um but also have like real downtime with my kids where it's not like I'm trying to do 10 things at once like actually just be with them we I'm not super like religious by any means but I we have a kind of loose like Shabbat day off situation and it's a goal for at least like Saturdays Super until one. You wrote a book on like the Seder dinner. Come on. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, you know, I'm not like Orthodox. Like we drive oh, okay. on Shabbat. There's like might be pork in my refrigerator. Shh, you know. Oh um, my gosh. <laughs> I'm letting the birthright.com people. <laughs> so like, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. Like it's not, we're not following all the rules of Shabbat and there are many rules. Judaism loves rules, but they're like, I keep some like spirit of it alive, which is like, this is time for connection. And that really does restore me. Like no expectations, no, like forget the to-do list. Cause it's never going to end anyway. Like, so if you don't yeah. do it for five hours, big deal. And actually being with my kids, they're cute. I love them. When number two is, when is the last time you cried? Oh, today. I'm so glad you said that. I've had some people, they're like, it was seven years ago. It was with a man. So, um, <laughs> Uh, what was it about? Uh, without getting, yeah, no, I can, I'll speak broadly, like just some physical health issues uh, with a relative, oh. close relative um, that we're trying to help navigate from across the country. Oh, that's hard. I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, number three, because I feel like you're going to have so many answers to this. Um, I'll have to write them all down. What are you currently reading? What am I, I'm reading, um, my Year Abroad, which is a new novel by Chang Ray Lee and loving it. And then I'm reading like 400 books on <laughs> religion because I'm currently on the chapter in uh, my book that I'm working on trying to see how like 
how caring for other people and parenting can be kind of like a spiritual experience, whether it involves God or just transcendence and awe. Um, so looking at like care and all these different religious tradition or tra traditions. I think people definitely, I mean, once again, this is just from my own experience. Uh -huh. Most of the great caregivers I've met, um, and obviously I don't work in the health field, but are very religious. Totally. That's, that's what I've, I've always seen, right? Yeah. No, I, mean, I come from yeah. a very religious family, though. We were Catholic. My dad's Lebanese. So I think it's different when you come Lebanon and it's just, it's, it's just, it's like a much tighter knit family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I have found that to be true. So I'll, I'll be interested to see what you find. Yeah, no, it's, in, it's super interesting. It's uh, don't even yeah, let me start. Cause then I'll just, <laughs> I've been so deep in it. I was like, I, I will not allow myself to say anymore because I won't stop myself. I've been there. Yeah, don't give away the book. Okay. <laughs> um, and number four, what is the best and worst advice you've been given? Ooh, that is a good one. Gosh, I don't even know. Because sometimes the worst advice could actually be the best advice if you would like ignore it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, like the best advice, that is such a good question. I feel like, first of all, I would like to say like, I am feeling alone right now because have I just like not been given that much advice in my life? <laughs> no, some people, honestly, sometimes when you're put on the spot like that, you're like, and then you hang up and you're like, oh, I remember now like that three things, yeah. you know? Um, my dad shit happens, which is not a uh, <laughs> unique advice, but he so thoroughly embodies it and has that truly that approach, like shit does happen and you just let in. And, and so I think not, not that that is because he truly lives it. It's like That's a like great his motto. Through line, his through line in life. Yeah. You know what? It's just like, even things bad happen, not, he would never say that if like, you know, let's say I worked on this book contract. If I didn't sell my book, he would never say to me, shit happens. But like, <laughs> if, you know, you like got a new couch and it gets, you know, like staying, you know, just the, the that kind of stuff, like the little hiccups in life, not right. like dreams being crushed, not health issues, nothing like that. But the hiccups in life that like to the ones where you shouldn't invest your emotions because shit happens, those ones, like yeah. you don't invest your emotions and the shit and the shit happens. You don't, you know, it's like, when it's you, you know, and you know, then you save the emotions for when you need them basically. Um, so I think that's really like, is very useful. Um, and I, I will have to think about bad advice. Um, I, yeah, it's a, I, that, that nothing's coming to mind. I'll think about it. I, I mean, I have so many, I, I, I have had a lot of people giving me bad advice, so maybe that's good. And then the final question, number five, what Instagram account do you find uplifting? I am not on Instagram. You're not, but I mean, do you ever go on it? I know I couldn't no. find you, but I thought maybe I know. No, my brother yesterday. No, my older brother's like, Alyssa, you got to get on Instagram. Everything's on, everyone's on there now. Like you got to get it on there for your book. I'm like, I know. Um, I'm not on there. I feel like. Um, by the way, like, yeah. I think that's really cool. Don't go <laughs> I, you know, I, I get it. Like, it's not like I think it's like all terrible. I don't have, you know, um, those attitudes, you know, I feel like I already put so much of myself out there because of my work that I right. kind of like, like I'm on Twitter, you know, I'm on, I, I'm on Facebook. Like, I feel like I can kind of control it more, but once like, I don't know, once you bring in like pictures of me, it feels like further exposure. Um, so 
not on it for now, but I know a lot of people are doing cool things with words on there now. So um, I think, yeah, once, once a cool things with what words, like words. Yeah. Just like sharing oh, I quotes thought, I thought and you stuff. You just said awards. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like the Oscars. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 just, you know, like sharing. Yeah. Like having it be. So yeah, I think for me, it would be like a big, like, I can't imagine me p- putting pictures of my family. Like sharing a quote or a section from a book yeah. or. Yeah, exactly. I think that's it too. Like I've never shared any pictures of my children on social media, like because I write about this stuff. So I feel like I we're already exposed in this way. Um, so I, it's like, that's how I can create the boundaries by not doing Yeah, like, like they'll be like, I thought you said no ice cream after nine. <laughs> Posted like, this at 10 o'clock. Totally, yeah. exactly. Like, it just feels like, a, like that's an easy way I can like draw one boundary when I don't have boundaries in other ways. Yeah, well, oh, well then is there a Twitter account you like that you recommend or are you just... I mean, or who do you enough, find that yeah. you get like good, you know, like daily quotes or advice from, like from the sort of social aspect of the world? I feel like Twitter more than Facebook, but I don't know. I find Facebook so overwhelming. Yeah, honestly, like <laughs> because it's so bound up with my work, it doesn't feel like that kind of space for me. I think you know, it's yeah. like I go. It's, it's all like, for work. Yeah, like, and, and not in that that makes it all bad, but it's like, I, no, I put my articles up there. I like see how other people are responding to different areas that I cover. Like, it feels very part of my job and not something that like, is just about like who I am in the world. Right. It's work driven. Yeah. All right. I see your brother's trying to get you to slowly make your way. Yeah. To, to the Instagram. No, it's. It's, it becomes just like, it's like another thing. You know what I mean? Another. Totally. Right. Exactly. And it's like, you know, it it just, I, right now, especially because I'm just like, you know, this, like selling a book was really exciting for me and being able to just be in the headspace of like a project that takes a long time and is expected to take a long time is so exciting. So that's like kind of the last thing I want to do is to jump back in that world where you're like producing content all the time. I was like, no, 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 I got to take a year to think about things and write them. And I want to yeah. enjoy that, you know? Were you, have you been working on this idea though, anyway, for a long time, I would think? Yeah. It's, I mean, just writing a book proposal, finding the right agent, it's a long process. So definitely, oh gosh. I mean, at least like, I mean, probably like two years really between like the initial thought, writing up something, finding an agent. No, but I mean, like, were you always interested though in the caretaker? Yeah, I have been. I mean, even like years ago, uh, even before I became a parent, I wrote, you know, some articles about like domestic workers unionizing and organizing. Um, So really, I think I've always been really fascinated by like the domestic space and like the human relationships that take place in them. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot goes on at home. That's true. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode. And I want to give a special shout out to Alyssa Strauss for joining me. Um, We're so thrilled to have you. Where can our listeners find you? We, we know now it's not Instagram. <laughs> I think I do have a handle. I think I do. So you know what? Let's see. Find me on Instagram. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, take my brother's. No, 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 no. I don't want to be like the, the, 
please. No, no, it's good. No, I, it's, uh, it's fun. Follow Maybe this Twitter is... or Facebook if you yeah, want. Yeah, I'm on, okay, I'm on um, Twitter at Alyssa Avery. I'm on Facebook. For some reason, Facebook one day just shut down my author page, and I don't know why, and I was like, oh, I don't have the bandwidth to try to fight. So it's just my, per- yeah, I don't, they're like, this is illegal after like five years and how many, what? I don't know how many followers I have. I don't, I mean, I, don't, I honestly, it was like one of those was like, I don't, this shit happens. See, we're back yeah. to shit. It's like shit happens. I'm moving on from this. Um, so I'm not going to like fight with Facebook. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter and, and the Avery and yeah. And then my face, if you go to my website, alyssastrauss.com, there's links to both. And I have a newsletter that I'm just getting started. I'm thinking about parenthood and care. Okay. And then I, well, my next question is what do you have coming up? But we, we mentioned your book in the beginning and then you were just talking about it, but that, that comes out next year, right? No pressure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. I work on the book and, you know, still be writing for CNN and, um, and yeah, working on this new newsletter called not so simple. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all folks. Be sure to subscribe to Ben better HBU and we can be found on Apple and Spotify and tune in next time. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better, How About You? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.